Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. And that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. So it's my huge pleasure to welcome to the G Word podcast today, Professor Sir Munir Pir Mohammed. It would take me too long to list all of his uh, roles and responsibilities, but Munir is a British clinical pharmacologist um, and geneticist and is the NHS Chair of Pharmacogenomics at the University of Liverpool. Munir, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. Tell us a little bit, maybe first about yourself and then about pharmacogenomics. But um, so how did you get into, into this whole space? So I'm a clinical pharmacologist, but I'm also a physician working in the NHS and I see patients. Um, and since I qualified, I was able to see that people respond differently to drugs. You know, some people respond very well. Some people don't respond at all. And some people get adverse effects. So I started looking into that and seeing what may be responsible for that. And although we take into account some factors which determine how you respond to drugs, there were other factors, particularly genetics, which we're just ignoring. And hence why I decided to go into the field to understand this, identify new uh, drug gene pair associations and see how I can take it into clinical practice. Fantastic. So let's let's unpick that a bit, sort of drug gene pairs like pharmacogenomics, the word pharmacy and the word genomics kind of plug together. What is the field? What are the questions that we're asking and what are the answers that we can uh, that we can find? So we all vary in our genome. Our genome is, is uh, hugely variable uh, and it determines our individual characteristics, you know, height, uh, etc. And the same variation uh, in our genes also determines response to drugs. Some people respond well, some people don't respond at all, some respond uh, adversely. Um, and it's identifying what those genetic factors are in association with what drugs we're using to then uh, see whether we can actually improve the way we use drugs. Now, if you consider that there are probably 3 million variations within the human genome uh, and there are uh, 1,500 drugs that we have uh, on the market, then you can see there's quite a lot of different associations that could be identified eventually. And we've actually only identified a small number at the moment. So there is importance of trying to get those gene drug pair associations we identify into clinical practice. But there's also a huge task, which is an opportunity. I don't call it a challenge, it's an opportunity for people to go into this field to identify those new gene drug pair associations. Absolutely. So I'm, I've kind of got a mental picture in my model now of a massive Excel spreadsheet where we have every kind of genetic variation as a column and every potential drug as a row. And, you know, I, I don't know what the maths is off the top of my head, but that's a that's a lot of cells that we're talking about. right? Absolutely. And, and it, it, it's going to be that some drugs will obviously be more complex than others. Many of the drugs that we've looked at have been the low hanging fruit where we've identified 
genes with a very large effect size. That means that so you know it's almost like a Mendelian disease sometimes. But but for others, you have small effects, and there may be multiple genes which contribute to that. Uh, it's like a polygenic risk score, but not as um, you know complex as a polygenic risk score. For example, warfarin is an example where we have two genes, three alleles, that is three variations together with some clinical factors, and we can develop an algorithm which improves dosing of warfarin. So it's a, it's a mix of things, right? So tell us a bit about warfarin and then also things like chemotherapy and so on. It's, it can really be any, any area of treatment, right? It can be, it can be any area, any therapeutic area. And so let me start off with warfarin. Warfarin is uh, still a widely used anticoagulant. It is cheap, therefore it is still very widely used in uh, many countries, even if it, the use is reducing in the UK and other Western countries. The problem with warfarin is that we can't define what the dose is at the beginning. Uh, it can vary from 0.5 milligrams to 30 milligrams, so a 60-fold variation. Um, and if you get the dose wrong, then you get too much anticoagulation, your blood becomes too thin, and therefore the patient bleeds. And so what we've identified, plus where other people have identified, is that there are two main genes which are important for warfarin uh, response. One is uh, cytochrome P452C9. I'm sorry I'm mentioning the genes, but, but you know. No, it's good to, good to know. Uh, it, it, it's basically the gene that uh, breaks down warfarin into its, its breakdown products, metabolites. Uh, and the other one is called vitamin K epoxyridosis complex. And warfarin is a vitamin K antagonist and interacts with this particular enzyme to be able to stop the uh, co uh, coagulation factors from working properly. And so when we take those two factors together, then we can actually identify uh, a, a, you know, the variation in drug uh, dose requirements. But, but not only that, we also then have to take into account the fact that as you get older, your liver gets smaller, so you need less warfarin. And as you get heavier, uh, you need more warfarin. <laughs> which, which, and, you know, and then people are taking a lot of different drugs as well, and those interact with warfarin. So we need to take all that into account. And what we did was to take into account the two genes, and we did three variants in those two genes. And we took into account those clinical factors I just mentioned, age, body mass index, drug, drug interactions, and we developed an algorithm which tells you what your dose should be at the beginning. Fantastic. So that shortcuts a lot of... Uh... That's right. Um, but, but then when you develop an algorithm, people say, well, how do you know it works? So we have to do a randomized control trial. So we do do a randomized control trial in uh, the UK and Sweden, funded by the EU Commission at that time. Um, and what we were able to show was that actually having a genotype guided dosing was more clinically effective than having standard dosing that we use. And in the long term, that would reduce the association with bleeding and so on. The problem comes, and I just want to touch upon it, and we can maybe discuss that a bit later, is that what we developed was an algorithm for individuals of from European ancestry. Right. That's who we studied. And, and the, the variation in different groups, uh, different ethnic groups, is different. Uh, and so the, the, the algorithm is very much European ancestry-based. Now, the Chinese are developing some Chinese-specific algorithms. Uh, there has been quite a lot of work to be able to develop some in Africans, but, but not enough have been studied, and the algorithm in Africans doesn't work very well at all. And the algorithms so far haven't really been developed to such a degree that they are um, uh, accurate enough to be able to predict what the dose should be. And so we've been working in 
uh, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in Uganda and South Africa to identify patients that we can actually then genotype to actually identify what those uh, variants are. And that's important uh, for both countries, actually, for all three countries, you know, the UK plus the countries I'm working with, because it's a bi-directional interaction. You know, we identify things which may help their populations and their, their findings from there will help uh, the populations here as well, which are relevant. So that we need to be able to think about those kind of uh, issues for our multicultural population that we have in the UK, because there's no point developing algorithm or genetic tests for one population, but just forgetting about everybody else, because that will lead to health inequalities. And so we need to make sure that what we do from the beginning has the relevant plan in there to capture what those health inequalities may be so that they're not unintended consequences. So you, your studies then are able to overcome some of the unintended consequences and you plan for that beforehand. Absolutely. And I'm going to take this as a uh, as a free piece of advertising for the, the need for our uh, diverse data initiative at, uh, at Genomics England. So, no, very, very, very important um, topic. And I think it's it's particularly interesting mentioning Africa. I mean, we know that there is more genetic variation just within different populations within Africa than in the rest of the world put together, given how the humans kind of uh, came from there originally. So we can see all of these different factors playing into it. So one is the, the variations that we see in your genes and, and that itself might be might vary depending on, for example, your ethnic background. You mentioned age, um, you mentioned BMI, you mentioned um, other drugs and so on. So I, I can see it starts to make sense to have an algorithm do some of the heavy lifting of that for the doctors. That's um, that's great. And maybe just um, give us a couple of other examples of some of the interesting drug gene pairs that have emerged. And I know it's used in, in cancer and other areas um, as well. Two examples uh, you know, that I can give you. The first one is in inflammatory bowel disease, such as Crohn's disease, uh, you know, where people use uh, drugs such as azathioprine. And azathioprine is broken down by uh, various different enzymes and it interacts with different targets in the body. Um, and we know that those are polymorphic uh, in the population, i.e. that they vary between, uh, from one individual to another. If you give the wrong dose to individuals who have low activity of those genes, then you are likely to have very high levels of azathioprine um, and therefore likely to cause bone marrow depression and sometimes death uh, in those individuals. And so what we have been doing, and we do this clinically as well, is that we type people for that particular variation in at the moment, we do it in thiopurine methyltransferase, sorry about another gene name, um, but, but there are other genes which have been identified as well, which are much better genotyped rather than uh, kind of measuring the activity. Um, and so that is one of the gene drug pairs that we would have on our list for implementation in the NHS so that azathioprine, which is a very widely used drug, not only for uh, Crohn's disease, osteocolitis, but also for other autoimmune diseases, you know, for example, psoriasis, uh, some neurological diseases, some liver diseases, so that people, before they go on that, can actually have that genetics sorted out so that they get the right dose of azathioprine and that reduces the chances of getting an adverse outcome um, because they'll have then have the relevant amount in the bloodstream which provides the benefit but does not provide the toxicity. Uh, so, so I think I think that's 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 an important one. And and if you look at both genes which are involved in determining azathioprine activity uh, in a sort of a response, 
again, that varies according to populations. So one of the genes called NUDT15, some of the variation is much more prevalent in Chinese populations than, than in Caucasian population, but there is variation in Caucasian populations as well. The other area which I think is really interesting is the role of HLA, the human leukocyte antigens, which are on chromosome 6. They determine how we respond to infections. You know, we need our immune system to be diverse. We respond to infections um, and the diversity in our immune system means that we can fight off infections and so on. If we had the same immune system, all of us, then we would be extinct by now. Yeah, unfortunately, that diversity in our uh, immune system responsiveness also predisposes some individuals to getting serious adverse drug reactions with uh, certain drugs. And what I mean by that, the serious, is that, um, you know, for example, I've looked after patients where the skin has just sloughed off. 60% of the skin has just completely sloughed off. And that's toxic epidermal necrolysis. And you imagine that you, you've got 60% of your body surface area, which is equivalent to third degree burns. You know, you can imagine the kind of how sick that patient would be. You know, they'll be uh, in huge amounts of pain. They'll be losing protein fluid from the skin. They won't be able to thermoregulate um, and, you know, will be prone to infection. And these individuals who get this toxic epidemic necrolysis have to be treated in an ITU or in burns unit, etc. Fortunately, it's very rare. But it does occur, 60 cases per year in this country. And, 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 and what we've identified is that there are genes which predispose in the HLA region to serious reactions like that. So a typical example of that is carbamazepine, which is a drug used in epilepsy, in trigeminal neuralgia, and in bipolar depression. Some people have a gene called HLA-B1502, and that is much more prevalent in Southeast Asians, but actually is has a frequency of 0.01% in a European population. And we know that if a Southeast Asian person uh, has that particular gene, that that increases the risk of getting this toxic necrosis where the skin can slough off. In China, uh, Taiwan, etc., it is now in the drug label, and it is in the EU as well as in the FDA, that if you have somebody of Southeast Asian background, you need to do undertake the G, uh, gene test. And obviously, it's easy in China because you do it in everybody. In Taiwan, you do it in everybody. But then actually, if I'm seeing a patient in front of me, then how do I define what Southeast Asian is, actually? <laughs> Quite difficult because, you know, to define exactly what, what that is. But, but so, so, you know, so, but anyway, the, the, there is that, uh, that issue that the clinicians have to overcome. So the, if, if the carbamazepine story becomes more complicated because then we were able to identify another HLA allele, 31A3101, which is more prevalent in European populations, which predisposes the same issue. So, you know, you have 1502 in Southeast Asians and 3101 uh, in uh, European ancestry, plus other populations as well. Actually, 3101 is more prevalent worldwide. So, so, you know, so you have to be able to think about which population you're looking at in terms of what the genetic predisposing factor is. So, but, and again, that's something that we'll find in with a lot of different drugs as we move along. Very, very interesting. And Mune, you've mentioned this idea of having a test to demonstrate whether someone is likely to have a bad reaction to a, to a given drug or to, to help with the dosing of it. What's involved there? Is that, is that complex and takes a long time or is it reasonably straightforward? So, so it's becoming uh, more and more uh, straightforward. It, it depends on turnaround time and what you need and how quickly you, you need it. So, for example, warfarin, you know, if somebody comes into an uh, emergency room, requires warfarin, then the, the doctor will want to give the warfarin straight away. 
And so what you need sometimes is a point of care test. And when we did our study, when we did our trial, we had a point of care test which provided us with results in two hours. Wow. On, on, on three, three SNPs and, and two genes. But then we refined, that to, we refined that to 45 minutes. Wow. And so that's a uh, patient gives some blood, we extract the DNA straight in or mouthwash? No DNA extraction, straight to the gene, 45 minutes, you get the results. You put that, put that into an algorithm uh, on the web that tells you what the dose should be. Wow. That's amazing. So, so, so that was 45 minutes and the cost of that, I think, was less than uh, 40 quid. Those kind of point of care technologies are becoming more widely available and, and cheaper and so on. But the, the, in, in the report that we published, what we're aiming for is a kind of panel approach. I'll, I'll go to panel, but then there's the issue of whole genome sequencing as well, which I want to come back to. The panel approach really is that, first of all, patient comes to the GP. The GP says, look, there's a genetic factor here. I'm going to do tests. I'm going to send it off to the genomics laboratory hubs, let's say, in England. The genomics laboratory test will do the test, um, and, and then they will send the result back to the GP. However, you know, if you do a panel approach, um, what you can do is to test for many different gene pairs, gene drug pairs, um, and keep the majority of that information on the patient's electronic health record. So what you're going from is a reactive approach to a preemptive approach, because as everybody gets older, you know, you are going to get other diseases and you're going to need some of the drugs that are already, you know, on that gene drug pair. Um, and that saves money in the long term. And, and to have a gene panel like that, uh, you know, to do one variant um, costs a certain amount, but to do 50 variants probably costs only slightly greater amount to be able to do the whole gene panel. And so, so you know, there's, there's an economy of scale, if you like. Absolutely. And, and yeah, and then I guess beyond panel, as you say, whole genome, right? Yes, that's right. And, you know, obviously more and more people are having uh, whole genomes, you know, the 100,000 Genomes Project, which obviously Genomics England led, you know, and the others of genomics uh, sequencing that's going on in the NHS at the moment, uh, etc. You know, so 500,000 people in the UK Biobank have been uh, sequenced and so on. Um, and so the critical thing is going to be that eventually everybody will have a whole genome, genome sequence. But how can we make sure that the data relevant to pharmacogenomics can be extracted and made available for clinical practice rather than just basically uh, not used. And that, that's, that's, that's a challenge uh, that we need to be able to make sure that uh, that data is not lost in the whole genome genome sequences, because that's going to be really important uh, for us to be able to use that and make that available to the clinician. So therefore, you get over the issue of having to do a test, which saves money uh, because you've already done the whole genome sequence, that data is available to you. Um, and it's, it doesn't change throughout your life. So you can have it throughout the whole life course from the time you're born when you need a drug right to the time, you know, you get uh, 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 you know, older and you're on multiple drugs and so on. I was going to say, actually, so I, one of the things on my mind is we've just been funded really excitingly to do a, a pilot uh, research project with the NHS around newborn sequencing um, to highlight early onset conditions that affect people uh, severely in, in early childhood and are, and are caused by our genes. Those participants, as they grow up and age, if they uh, choose to retain that information on their file, that will be with them over the course of their whole life. So as you say, we can use that to preemptively inform pharmacogenomic decisions, which is great. Is there anything that would 
change that over the course of someone's life you know dna largely stable but then if they're a heavy smoker or other kind of epigenetic effects um or would that be kind of good for their whole life no so the, the, the genomic variation won't change but 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 some of the sort of lifestyle uh effects may so sort of, uh lead to variation in how the gene interacts with the drug because you know if you smoke then some of your genes are induced and and that may sort of circumvent some of the effects of the genetic variation or may exacerbate the effects of genetic variation. So hence why I think, as, as I said, mentioned with the warfarin example, is that although genetics is important, uh, you know, we need to be able to take that into account together with the clinical factors as well. And I think that in the future, the way I see it is that genetics will be an integral part of what we do in terms of multimodal algorithms, whereby we take into account age, other drugs, other diseases, renal function, hepatic function, smoking, diet, exercise, and put that together with genetics into those multimodal algorithms, which allows us to be able to take into account all those factors. So it becomes quite complex, and therefore we will need decision support systems to be able to help people, you know, saying here's a dashboard and this is what it shows. And in, in, in the end, I think that the patient should be able to hold their own information, actually, um, and, and it should be on their phone, uh, you know, and, and they should be able to present that to the uh, doctor wherever they are. That allows portability of that information as well. Um, and, and, you know, then um, people can actually uh, look at that data and make sure that the person gets the right drug for them and so on uh, uh, in the future. For sure. In fact, I was someone was showing me the patient portal for, I think it was Imperial uh, Trust, the hospital in London, um, that had it was an admirably simple design and it was sort of my appointments, uh, my doctor, my records and stuff and six big bold uh, sort of boxes on the page, one of which was upload my genome. <laughs> wow. Okay. This is, we're ready. We're ready for this. This is good. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the problem is that, I, you know, I don't know how, how they're doing that, but, but you know, we, we've, we did a big trial on, uh, uh, for working with six other countries in, in the EU so there were seven countries altogether, whereby we've done a randomized control trial on 6,900 people, whereby you give do a panel. This is, uh, half of them didn't have the panel and, and half did have the panel. Uh, and and the uh, results are being analyzed at the moment in terms of what clinical benefit did that produce. But the, when I sort of started working with the hospital here where I recruited from, I said, I want to put that data into the patient's electronic health record. And they said, well, we can't do that. You can only, all we can offer is a PDF, which is not readable. That's a big challenge that we need to overcome because I think that data needs to be put into the health record in a coded format, which allows it to be uh, recalled when it's needed. And searchable and so on. Yeah. Okay. So we're, we're starting to get into some of the, the challenges here. Cause I guess if we step back, you say, right. This is so clearly beneficial for patients, right? We're going to get a better dose. We're going to understand whether there is a potential adverse reaction, even a, even a really serious adverse reaction, like the one you were mentioning around losing two thirds of your skin. I mean, like horrifying. It's presumably also great for health systems. You know, um, I don't know what the cost of having someone in intensive care for uh, days or weeks and then uh, having a whole new course of treatment is, but. I'd be willing to bet it's you know hundreds or thousands of times the the cost of the test. It seems almost like a no-brainer, right? You know why why are we not doing this already? So help us understand what it will take to actually get this onto the front line, so to speak. Yeah. So so the first aspect is to show cost effectiveness and health economics of this, and we have done some work on this. 
uh, and you know panel approach was shown to be uh, very cost effective and as as the cost of sequencing comes down the cost of genetic testing comes down it becomes even more cost effective and so on so you know that's 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 one aspect that we've already shown with the panel approach that it is cost effective the other other aspects are more the structural issues within you know any healthcare system not only the nhs one of those is whether you've got the laboratory infrastructure to be able to undertake that genetic testing. So if it became live uh, in the UK, you know, uh, uh, you know, many millions of drugs are prescribed every day. And what you don't want is the uh, genetic laboratories getting a million test requests every day because they won't be able to cope with that. So we need to think about the eligibility criteria, uh, you know, and eventually those eligibility criteria will expand, etc but also what the capacity is and so on to make sure that the um, laboratories do not become so overwhelmed by it that they can't do the, some of the tumor sequencing or the sort of rare disease and so on. So it's important that we, we actually scope that out. So that's, that's one aspect that we need to think about. But as, as we've seen with COVID, you know, we are still in a pandemic, but we've seen that uh, in COVID, what happened was that we were able to step up the diagnostics. We were able to do a million PCRs a day for many, many months. Uh, and, you know, that was done not only through the genomics laboratory hubs, but, but actually by NHS laboratories plus other kind of uh, laboratories that are there. So we can do this, uh, but, but you know, obviously um, uh, you know, it's important to think about the uh, practicalities of that. Well, I mean, but we have we have these huge labs now in places like Milton Keynes and Leamington Spa and so on that have been, as you say, stood up very rapidly and effectively for the COVID response. I, I may be oversimplifying, but as you know, touch wood, the pandemic kind of um, eases off. It's an interesting thought as to you know what we could do with that infrastructure, right? Yeah, and 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 obviously we need diagnostics. You know, and one one lesson from the pandemic is that um, you know our diagnostics capability wasn't very good before the pandemic started, but you know we rapidly stepped it up. It's important that we don't lose our diagnostics capabilities. You know, um, as we come out of the pandemic, and so that's going to be important. So you know, and I think that's an important lesson that we need to learn from the pandemic. Yes, yeah, so, so that, that, that definitely. The, so the second aspect is is then you know once we've done the genetics and so on is interpretation and actually uh, action in terms of what the patient gets. Um, and and here there are uh, several issues. Um, I'll go through them in uh, one by one. The first is education and training of uh, of uh, so sort of healthcare staff. Majority of people do not have any knowledge of pharmacogenomics. They have heard about it, uh, and so on. So you know, it's important that there is an important educational program, a training program that's associated with it. And I think that may be vary according to uh, you know what your interest is. It may be this for most people. It'll just be in time information that they need when, when you know, with regard to make sure that they take into account pharmacogenomics when they're prescribing. But there will, I think, in the future be pharmacogenomic specialists that, you know, that can help with the more complex cases and so on. They help to make sure the patients get the right drugs and so on, work with other specialties, work with pharmacists and so on. And I think that that's going to be, a, you know, something that's going to happen. But I think what we also need to do is that we need to embed a genomics as a whole. Pharmacogenomics is included within that within curricula, you know, our yeah. medical curricula, our sort of pharmacist curricula, nursing curricula. Because if you look at most curricula, they probably spend uh, a day or less throughout through five years on genomics. 
Wow, that's a that's very stark. You know, that's a generalization. You know, obviously, some places will spend more, but actually, the amount of time which is spent on genomic is actually very small. And you know, and, you know, if I'm, I'm more familiar with the medical curriculum, and and med, medical students need to learn a lot of different things. And you know, I guess is what do you drop to be able to include genomics in there? And and that is a challenge for deans of medicines to be able to sort out. And so absolutely. Well, it's, it's funny actually. The the very first guest we had on this podcast um, about a year and a half ago was Eric Topol. Okay. Who um, published his his thesis on uh, the application of genomics in healthcare in 1975? Okay. Um, and uh, he was he was lobbying for um, every medical student at the beginning of their uh, medical degree to actually uh, sequence their own genome and look at it and use it as they go through their uh, course. So maybe we, maybe we should uh, be challenging the deans of medicine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one way to get every medical student, every nursing student, every pharmacy student to get interested in it if they have their own genome. Yeah, exactly. We'll learn from that, yeah. And, 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 and that, so people have done that in the States whereby, you know, in certain genomics um, courses, they actually get them to be able to not sequence the whole genome, but actually do some genotyping of certain genes and so on and give them data and so on. So, you know, that increases the interest. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so so we need to establish cost effectiveness. We need to have the sort of systems in place, um, but both for the, the labs to sequence stuff and then for people to interpret it. For the interpretation to happen, we need, uh, I guess, both continuous professional development for people who are already doctors, nurses, clinicians, and also, you know, the next generation of people coming through. What, what are the other things that need to be true? So, so the, the other thing is that this is going to be really complex. As I said, you know, multimodal algorithms, um, and and um, you know that we are dealing with. Um, as 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 a doctor working in the NHS, you know, I, I now have to deal with lots of different dashboards. Um, you know, and 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 those are related to decision support systems on what is the best. Uh, you know, what is prognostic markers there, uh, what is the sort of drug-drug interactions which may be occurring, what are, so can I use AI algorithms to be able to interpret their chest x-ray, uh, interpret their histo- you know, pathology data, etc. and so on. So, so I think what we need is, is a um, very good decision support systems which allow us to be able to embed pharmacogenomics in there, which they, takes into account all the other things. But as, as, as a doctor, I don't want 20 different apps for me to be able to you know, click on every time I want to see a patient, because that will take too long. And, and you know, what we need is, is much more intelligent decision processes which embed everything into one dashboard. So I have all the information I need for the patient there. You know, in my clinic, as a consultant, I have 15 minutes to see a patient. A GP has seven to eight minutes to see a patient. And if you're going to inc- increase that beyond seven to eight minutes, then the queue in the um, waiting room will get longer patient will start complaining and GP will just drop that, um, you know, the test that takes too long. So we need to make it really simple and fast. Absolutely. And it needs to fit in with the clinical pathway. And if you disrupt the clinical pathway too much, then, you know, uh, nobody's going to use it. And so that's, that's an issue that we need to sort out. And the only way we can do that is to have intelligent clinical decision support systems. Um, and, and I think that's going to be a critical part of that uh, in terms of, you know, moving forward. Yeah, so, so that requires the IT infrastructure, uh, it requires a digital transformation, uh, and requires the uh, information to move from the genetics laboratory into the electronic health record. Um, it can be put into the patient's electronic health record, et cetera, uh, in, a, in a searchable format uh, that allows the sort of 
person to make a decision now, but also in the future as the patient gets older. So we need to lay these challenges at the uh, at the foot of uh, Tim Ferriss, who otherwise has uh, has nothing to do <laughs> in terms of yeah. digitally trans transforming the whole NHS. But, but you know, some places in the states are doing that, and Tim will be very well aware of that. You know, I, I visited St Jude's Children's Research Hospital um, not long ago, and you know they have they've already sort of got pharmacogenomics embedded in their prescribing systems and they're doing nine gene drug pairs or nine about nine gene drug pairs at the moment you know and it is searchable etc so some places are already doing that uh, so so you know it's, it's it's not rocket science really it, it, it we can do this well it's it's one of the sort of ironies i think of life sciences and um and healthcare is that to some extent, the rocket science is the easy bit, right? We we can employ some rocket scientists who are great at their job, and they can they can come up with the multimodal algorithm. Actually, it's the in, implementation in kind of from from Sutherland to Somerset to um, you know across the the whole country. An important part of that, sorry, is important part of that is that we need to make sure, and and we we made that very clear in the report, is that the funding for this needs to be national. Uh, you know, rather than uh, be postcode related, because what we don't want to do is to exacerbate health inequalities. Absolutely. So, if I were, I don't know, some some combination of Boris Johnson and Amanda Pritchard, like what would what would be your pitch uh, to me? Like, what would what what are the levers that we need to pull? What do what do healthcare leaders need to do? So, so the, the, the first lever is obviously having the funding to introduce the pharmacogenomic service. Uh, you know, and, and, and Leicester Genomics Laboratory House and other genetics laboratories have the funding to be able to do this, then then you know it, it won't it won't it won't work. So actually having the funding to be able to do that is important part. Um, then so if, you know uh, from Amanda's perspective is to make sure HEE, which is now part of NHS England, then so you know has the relevant educational resources they require need to be able to make sure that uh, you know CPD. Uh, we need to work with the Medical School Council, the Royal Pharmaceutical Council, General Medical Council, and other bodies to embed, improve our curricula. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, for future, um, and and we need to work with the IT infrastructure. So Tim Ferriss and uh, you know, uh, and so on with the National Clinic Director for Transformation, Digital Transformation, etc. That how we can actually improve our digital infrastructure to be able to make sure that we have the relevant software that allows people to be able to use that information. Absolutely. Is there anything else we should touch on in the kind of clinical context? I'm, I'm also keen to explore the potential of these kinds of um, insights for the development of, of new therapeutics. Yeah, so, so happy to talk about that. But before we go on to that, I think the sort of important thing is that we need to make sure that patients and public are very much engaged in this. Absolutely. And, and we, we have highlighted that in the report. You know, because this is for the benefit of patients who are in medicines, but they need to be comfortable with what we're doing. They need to be involved in the service design in terms of what is required, and they need education as well. You know, because people think that when you have a pharmacogenetic test, you're going to be hundred percent predictive. But nothing in this world, no test, is hundred percent predictive. But you know, we need to get from where we are at the moment, which is zero or ten percent predictability, to above sixty, seventy percent predictability you know, to improve the outcomes of people. So they need to have that perspective on there, that it, this is an improvement in what we do, and the probability of getting it right first time increases, but it's not 100%.
Um, and, 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 you know, it, and I see this as an evolution in the way we practice medicine rather than revolution. You know, as we've practiced medicine over the, uh, you know, this century and last century, you know, new things have come in and we've added them into the clinical pathways and we've improved the way we practice medicine. And this is just an evolution of the way we practice medicine. Absolutely. Um, journey of a thousand miles, lots of different steps, right? Yeah. Great. So very, very inspiring in terms of the potential for, for patient impact. And as you say, patients uh, need to be involved in that, in that journey the whole way through. I guess to some extent, can we start to get upstream of these issues that we can see in the, in the clinic um, through the design of new drugs and therapeutics that I guess to some extent take this into account in their design? Is that, is that starting to be possible? Yeah, yeah, yes, it is. So um, I, th I think there's two aspects to it. Um, and let me go through both of those. The first is that, um, you know, uh, uh, there are many drugs which are licensed every year, new drugs which are licensed every year. And at the moment, there is sometimes a disconnect in the, in the information which is present in the drug label. You know, so, so it may be that a new drug may say that avoid this particular drug, uh, uh, you know, combination in this, uh, when you're prescribing this new drug because there's an interaction which increases the risk of toxicity with that drug because it inhibits a particular enzyme, let's say. But then you also say in the same label that if you've got a genetic polymorphism uh, for that particular enzyme, it may say if you're aware of what the genetics are, then you need to act on it, but it doesn't tell you to be able to do the genetic test before you put the drug, uh, you know, we start the patient on the drug. So there's a disconnect here whereby we are using, uh, you know, giving different information for different things, just because we don't have the genetic information readily available. And we're not saying you should do the genetics. Um, so, so, you know, that's something that people, uh, drug companies will, and regulators will need to think about as we move in the future, because we need to get rid of that disconnect at the moment. That's a curve. And, 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 you know, one thing that's happening in the States is that there is a, a new act which is going through Congress at the moment, the Right Drug Dose Now Act, which is a bi has got bipartisan support which is really to start thinking about how pharmacogenomics can be embedded within the U.S. healthcare system, uh, you know, which includes not only the kind of uh, in the Sentinel hospitals such as Mayo, um, you know, uh, Mass General, etc., but every healthcare system within the United States that needs to think about pharmacogenomics for the population and so on. And, you know, if that, if that goes into law in the United States, then the drug companies will have to take notice of that and they will have to probably start thinking about putting in pharmacogenomic information uh, much more than they are doing at the moment in their uh, during their sort of development phase, and then within the drug label when the drug is licensed. So that's something that, that you know I can't predict that, but that may be something that may happen. And I mean, anything that has bipartisan support these days, that you know, that must be a sensible idea. Right? I mean, that's, yeah. and it has bipartisan support, so and it is going through Congress at the moment. And and the, it, it's interesting that the U.S. is putting this into law. You know, and, and putting pharmacogenomics into 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 the legal sort of infrastructure. So I, th I think that's one aspect of it. So I, th I thought I just mentioned that. The second aspect is: Can you use genetics and genomics and the discoveries we're making into uh, in terms of identifying new drug targets and also identifying um, ways of being able to prevent adverse drug reactions? The answer to those is yes, both of those um, for identifying new uh, drug targets. Work has been done by many of the companies, I think several companies have now published on this, which says that if you identify 
a genomically derived target, uh, you are twice as likely to have a successful drug at the end of it compared to when you don't use the genomics to be able to uh, you know, uh, identify the drug target. And, and, and in a way, this is still pharmacogenomics, but it's a wider definition of pharmacogenomics than we use for healthcare. Um, and similar things are also being uh, done for with regard to um, safety as well, because we can identify people, uh, you know, through their genetics, uh, who may be sort of, you know, based on their sequence, etc., uh, whether there may be a risk for a particular adverse event occurring. So if you have somebody who's got uh, a rare variant uh, in a particular gene, and they they sort of, you know, have, let's say, developed diabetes. So if you're going to develop a drug which interacts with that particular target, then you can imagine one of the side effects is going to be diabetes. So what you do is you try to uh, uh, you know, either not use that drug target or you modify it so that you don't get the diabetes, but you get the beneficial effects and so on. So you can utilize that information to be able to make sure that your drugs for the future don't have the expected side effects based on the genetic characteristics of that, um, of the, of the, of that mutation. Wow, very, very cool. And so if we, if we take a step right back, let's imagine a world in kind of 10 to 15 years where pharmacogenomics is embedded throughout this whole chain in sort of research, development of new therapeutics, development of companion diagnostics, prescribing behavior, um, you know, healthcare systems. What would that system look like? Well, I would hope that system would look um, like something that, you know, when you went to see your doctor, you either had your genetic information on your phone uh, or the doctor had it on the system. They were able to utilize other information they had on you, other drugs you were taking and so on, and give you the right drug at the right dose at the right time for you to get the right outcome. I, th I think that that would be sort of the ideal thing to happen um, and, and that information is available. It, it's just like, you know, when I prescribe, I look at somebody's kidney function and if a kidney function is reduced, you know, there, there will be information for me to say reduce the dose by 65% or something like that. So I, I, it's a similar similar kind of concept. As I said, it's an evolution in the way we practice medicine. But I think one of the other things I said was that pharmacogenomics is never going to be 100% predictable. And no factor is, no clinical factor is 100% predictable. But, but, you know, it will be implemented in different ways and people will make errors, etc. We need to, it's not a blame culture, we need to learn from those and so what we need to do is to make sure the data infrastructure that we have, we learn from what is going on to make sure that, you know, when we are embedding pharmacogenomics and other technologies into our healthcare system, that we're able to learn from that through the data infrastructure we have. And when we find out that there are particular issues in terms of implementation, uh, try to identify what the root cause of that problem is and then try to fix it. Um, and, and come back. And so what we do have to have is the learning health system, really, is that you introduce something, but you actually monitor how you embed that into your healthcare system, learn from it, and improve it so that you can actually improve the outcomes for patients all the time. Hugely inspiring. Um, well, thank you for everything you're doing to help bring that world into reality. And um, we'll look forward to... Uh, continuing to, to try and support that in, in every way that, uh, that we can. Um, thanks, for, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today, Mune. Thank you. Bye now.
Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series and appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.